All right. Well, good evening. Um, it always start on Sunday, and I think uh, it'll go fast. But I know that. But it still feels like it's, it's several days off. And then you know, I always get to Wednesday night and think, my goodness, did we skip a night? Or so here we are, and uh, appreciate the invitation to come back this year and um, pray pray for your congregation at this time this interim period in between pastors and pray for the committee which I'm sure you're doing I'm just curious how many of you in here are on the search committee so what the two I see I know uh, there's another I talked to last night who's around um, so the church should be praying for your for your committee it's uh, serious work you do on behalf of the whole congregation and and uh, so I'll, I'll be praying for you, and um, and expect that when I come back next year, you folks will probably have found somebody by then. But like I told you, I was in. Now I'm not. I'm not predicting anything here. Uh, but I was in them over two years at uh, First Baptist in Shawnee, so uh, they can go that long. And I don't think uh, I, one time that I can remember I was in a church that it was under a year. So it's it's just all it's just. And that's like 17 interims or something like that. So one time, it was under a year. And uh, at, once, I think, it was over two years. So just pray for, just pray for them to, to find the right person. But I know, I know that there's, it's a little bit of a feel of uncertainty and instability with that. But uh, it happens to every church, and it, uh, sometimes uh, often. But I'm glad that somebody uh, still said, let's have, let's have Kelly back for January Bible study. So I'm glad to be here. And uh, I don't even know what it is next year, but hope we'll, hope we'll be able to do it again uh, for however many, 15, 16, whatever it'll be in a row. Okay, so if you've got your handout, uh, you go back from the beginning. We did, there's one page front and back of introduction, and there's still some here. You may be here, this might be your first night or second night, maybe you just lost the sheets you had, they'll just throw these away, so if you don't have one with you, I'd be happy to hand you one right right here, right now. Oh, good, I'm glad to give him one, and he's got an OBU shirt on, so he's doubly good tonight. Anybody else? Nick's got some too. So if you're looking through that. As, as yours, I'll just look at yours so I can see what page we are. Front and back is introduction. Then we covered the God who suffers for and with his people. That's where we did Psalm 22. It's the only one we actually had time to do that night. And then last night we did, um, if this would be the back of the second page, Roman numeral 2, the God who forgives. So we looked at those two penitential psalms, psalms of repentance. Um, the first one was an individual uh, that we don't know who it was or, or what the situation was. Uh, and you remember the don't be a donkey. Maybe that'll re- remind you. And then the next one was Psalm 51, and that was David in, in the situation of his ad- adultery with Bathsheba and the, and the judgment that came upon him as a result of that. And, and that is his cry of confession, which focused on God's steadfast love, his hesed. So now we move down to Roman numeral 3 at the bottom of that page. 
And we did sing in the blues on Sunday morning. That was the sermon. So we're going to start with, and that was an individual lament. So now we're going to hear a community lament. Psalm 22 is also an individual lament. So now we get to hear a little bit different kind of lament. Now we get to hear what it sounds like when Israel laments, when the nation um, has a lament. So we're going to look at Psalm 137. And then on the back page, I know it's five psalms, but... We'll move through them pretty quickly. Uh, so that's where we're going. We're going to finish, finish with praise just like uh, the book of the Psalms uh, finishes with five psalms of praise. That's how, that's how we're going to finish uh, also. So t- let's turn with me to, to Psalm 137. When you open it up, you see, unlike Psalm 51 that we started with last night, which had a full description that it was a psalm of David, and it was in the light of his sin with Bathsheba and Nathan calling him out on it. Here, we don't even have a title. We don't know who it is. It doesn't say who it is. We're going to know who it is when we start reading. But the title does not indicate any historical background. But the psalm itself gives us everything we need to know. So as it opens, it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And that's all we need to know to get, to get a lot of historical background. The rivers of Babylon, these are Israelites who'd been carried away in captivity in 586. There was actually an invasion in 597, but it didn't result in, in widespread exile. It was, you know, about a decade later, the Babylonians invade the southern kingdom a second time. That's when they destroy the, the temple, and that's when we, they carry off um, the thousands of Jews into exile in Babylon. That's clearly the setting for this. So in order to understand the deep emotion, and we're going to hear some really deep emotion in this one, um, uh, we talked about the guy, uh, the, the psalmist David on Sunday morning having a little bit of a bad attitude, sounding kind of curmudgeonly. This one's way, way beyond just curmudgeonly. This is not just a bad. At, this is not just sort of a bad attitude. We're going to hear a real cry for vengeance uh, in this one. But in order to understand that, first of all, you've got to know these are real people. This is a real nation, and they'd had horrible things done to them. And just to understand what siege would have looked like, and I guess it would still today if wars were fought like this, but you would have had Babylonian troops who'd been away from home for a a long period of time sieging Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a walled city, so you didn't just march in and take it. it. It would require time and a great deal of effort. And siege warfare was a dirty business, even from the standpoint of the one doing the siege but from the standpoint of Babylonian soldiers, they'd, been, they'd have to be away from home for a lengthy period of time just to make the, the time to, to travel to Jerusalem as, a, as an army. And then to try to tear down the walls of the city. I mean, it takes the Romans like, th- you know, th- four years to finally uh, tear down the walls and get in and destroy the temple when they uh, invade in like 66 A.D. So... I don't know exactly how long the Babylonians had been away from home, but it would have been a lengthy period of time. And when you're trying to besiege a city that is walled, can you imagine over, over that time when you're at the wall and trying to not tear it down, the kinds of things that would be poured on you repeatedly, the kinds of insults that would be hurled at you, 
the weaponry that would be unleashed on you as, as best the people inside could. By the time they got inside the walls, I mean, they were lusting for vengeance and to take out all their frustrations on these people. That's from the standpoint of the ones who are trying to get inside the city. Then you think about the people inside the city, the Jewish people. Uh, after a lengthy period of siege, they're going to be exhausted, they're going to be hungry, and they're just going to be devastated when the walls finally collapse. So you can imagine what that's going to look like when those Babylonian troops get inside the wall. As a nation, they, they tear down the temple, they destroy the temple, they just destroy the city. Individually, personally, for, for Israelites, it's going to mean women being raped. It's going to mean children being trampled, lives destroyed. And then as the sort of the final um, dishonor, they're going to carry the best and brightest in Israel out of the land that is the land that means so much to them, the land that God had promised to Abraham and to his descendants, that land. They're going to be carried out of that land and they're going to be carried back to Babylon. And they're going to be set down by the rivers of Babylon. So it's just, the, it's just you talk about hell on earth, you think about the worst possible scenario for, for Jewish people, that's what's just happened to them. So you've got to know that and to maybe understand something of the situation we, we're gonna, that's behind these strong words. And, and I tell you, we have a hard time identifying with it. Now, I, I think maybe, um, I don't know, there's very few people still living who fought in World War II. Um, but maybe that generation could understand something, uh, it, uh, maybe those who actually witnessed the, the Holocaust, they could understand something of the, of the pain that people could endure. But for most of us, we've lived in pretty peaceful times. And it's just hard for us to even identify with the kind of uh, emotion that these people would be feeling at the time they sing this song, this lament song. And so I think it helps to think about maybe what they'd been through. It really happened, and it happened to real people, and those people lifted up their hearts in a prayer to God. And uh, that's what we have here, this communal lament. So it begins here at verses 1 through 3, where we have an expression that they are dislocated and humiliated. By dislocation here, I don't mean like your arm being dislocated. I mean they're, they were in their location that they wanted to be, that is the land that God had given to them, and now they've been taken out of that land, so they're experiencing dislocation in that way, just geographically, and also humiliation. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. If we had done the 23rd Psalm, you'd recall the line uh, when the, the, the shepherd sits them down by the still waters, right? Um, and the green pastures, but the still waters. These, this, it's a, there's maybe an echo of it here, but it's a very different setting than, uh, than the shepherd leading you by the still waters the Babylonians dragging you into exile. And the rivers of Babylon would be a better location. I mean, if you were just looking for the place to live, you'd probably choose there by the rivers of Babylon rather than you would, uh, you know, where, where Israel is. 
I mean, you, I mean, think about how you can thrive around water like you have here. It's a very arid, dry climate for Israel. Uh, he talks about there on the poplars we hung our harps, the waters where there'd be trees and greenery. And, you know, if you're just looking for a place to spend your retirement years, you might say, hey, Babel looks like a pretty good spot. But that's not how they're feeling about it. They don't want to be there, even if it's a better location, just aesthetically. That's not the land that God had given them to live in. This was not the promised land. So they just feel completely dislocated. And there on the poplars we hung our harps. Harps are song, uh, as an indication of joy. Symbol, they symbolize joy. That's the, that's the instrument that David played. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So they were being sort of taunted here and said, why don't you sing for us? We hear you Jewish people like to sing. Why don't you sing us one of your happy songs that celebrates Jerusalem? So it's all about taunting them. And this is not the first time that this has been used against Jewish people. Uh, in fact, we're familiar with it from the Holocaust where Jews were forced to sing when they certainly didn't want to sing in concentration camps. And we learn a lot about what that life was like uh, from people who've written about it who survived uh, certain concentration camps. And I, I think I've quoted uh, to you from Elie Wiesel the other night in his book, Night, He's a Survivor. This is Eberhard Schmidt, another survivor of a Sackenhausen, I think it is, which I think is in Germany, That's a, but it was an encampment that was actually in Germany. And he talks about that forcing Jews to sing was a technique that uh, the SS guards used to humiliate Jewish people. He said they were forced to sing while marching, while doing exercises, while doing roll call, on the way to and from doing, during work, during beatings and executions, they were forced to sing. Here's his quote. The SS made singing, like everything else they did, a mockery, a torment for the prisoners. Anyone who did not know the song was beaten. Anyone who sang too softly was beaten. Anyone who sang too loud was beaten. When in the evening we had to drag our dead and murdered com comrades back into the camp, we had to sing. Hour after hour we had to, whether in the burning sun, freezing cold, or in the snow or rainstorms, on the roll call plaza, we had to stand and sing. Meanwhile, the dead and dying comrades lay next to us on a ripped-up wool blanket or on the frozen or soggy ground. So um, what we see here, the taunting to sing us one of your songs of Zion, is a similar technique that was used in, during the Holocaust to humiliate Jews and taunt them um, in, you know, in the last century. So we know what that's all about. And the response to that is they hung their poplars, uh, their, their harps on the trees, which is like a declaration that we just don't, we just, we're too blue to sing. You know, the Sunday morning sermon would have been singing the blues. They're just too blue to sing. So they just hang their harps on the trees. It's like, uh, you know, a bird that, that's not going to sing. They just won't do it. The irony is, this is a song, but it's a song about their inability to sing. Um, they just won't sing 
their captors' songs. They won't sing the songs that the Babylonians were taunting them to sing. What they're actually singing is a curse on their captors. But because they're singing it in Hebrew, it's unlikely their captors have any idea what they're singing. That's an interesting uh, twist in it. So verses 4, uh, 5, and 6, is, is, is you just feel their longing for home. So it starts with they're dislocated, they're humiliated, uh, and now longing for home. It says, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. You ever been homesick? I mean, really homesick? You've not ever been dragged out of your home and taken to another country where you were not going to be allowed to go back to your country, where I doubt you have. I certainly haven't. I've been homesick before. First t- the first time I left home, I went to, um, to Southwest Baptist University because I thought that's where the place where I needed to go. This was, uh, I'd gone one year to a college close to, you know, within 10 minutes of my, of my home. I felt like I should go to this place in Missouri, kind of the other side, close to Springfield, Missouri. From where I was from, it was the other side of Missouri. It was a long drive from home. And, um, man, I got really homesick. I got so homesick that I only stayed one semester. <laughs> and, I, and I went back home, and... Um, there was a Baptist college close to where I lived, but you know, at that moment, I just felt like that was where I, that was the place. But I was willing to say, I don't think this is for me. And, and I went back and finished up at that college close to my house and pastored a church uh, for those two years. And it was just the, it was the right place for me. But, that, but Southwest Missouri wasn't the place for me at that time. Bolivar, Missouri was not in 1985. A fantastic place to live, um, and I was homesick. And you didn't ha- we didn't have cell phones then, where you could just call your friends and talk endlessly. Uh, I mean, you like had to have a uh, I don't even remember, but you but it you had to either put money in a machine, or you or you had to have an account of some kind, and somebody was going to get charged for those calls. So that's when you know you had to wait till after like eleven o'clock at night to call, where it was cheaper, you know that kind of stuff. I was homesick. And so I went home. They're homesick, and they can't go home. And there's something in the human psyche that longs to go home. I'll always be a Kentuckian. No longer how long, how long it is for me in Oklahoma, I will always be a Kentuckian. When people say, where are you from, I say Kentucky. And, and now I've lived longer outside of Kentucky than I did. I mean, I left there when I was 22 for good. Uh, I went to seminary when I was 22 in Fort Worth, and I've not returned to live there uh, since then. I'm 56 now, so I've been out of the, the Commonwealth a lot longer than I actually was there, but I'll, I'll always feel like a Kentuckian. And I've come to terms with God called me to be apostle to the Okies, and so I'm, <laughs> I've come to terms with that. But I, I still do get homesick. Certain things about Kentucky make me homesick. Um, the mountains, I miss the mountains, 
Uh, I miss the leaves changing color in the fall. I know you can probably drive to Tulsa and see some, you know, that part of the state, but it's not the same. The, the, the trees in those Appalachian Mountains just turn the most beautiful colors. Uh, I miss the snow. We almost never had ice. We just always had snow. So it wasn't treacherous to drive. It was just beautiful. Now, I'm sure I'm, you know, idealizing it. Heck, there's lots of things wrong with southeastern Kentucky. You know, like things like alcoholism and illiteracy and poverty and, you know, suicide. And, I, yeah, it's not perfect. But I miss it sometimes. And um, I can hear there is a lament that is the state song, My Old Kentucky Home. And I can hear that song almost anytime, anywhere, and it will stir my emotions, often make me cry. Um, and it's a lament about being displaced. It's, it's a song about somebody who's taken out of Kentucky and longing to go back. So it goes, um, oh, the sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home. Tis summer, the old folks are gay. Well, the corn tops ripe and the meadows in the bloom while the birds make music all the day. And then you get to the end of it. Weep no more, my lady. Oh, weep no more today. We will sing one song for my old Kentucky home. For my old Kentucky home far away. Now I can hear that first Saturday in May, Kentucky Derby, and I'll cry. I can hear that senior night of a University of Kentucky basketball game, and I'll cry. It just reminds me of home. And uh, there's just something in us that wants to go home. Think about um, our literature. Maybe the greatest epic, yeah, it, I'll just go ahead and say it. The greatest epic poem ever written is the Odyssey. And it's a story about uh, Odysseus trying to return home to Ithaca after the Trojan War and all the things that happened to him on that journey back home. It's a story of going home, the Odyssey. And uh, you think about popular films. I mean, you look at any list of the greatest films in history, and uh, The Wizard of Oz is going to be right somewhere in the top. And it's a story about Dorothy getting back to Kansas. And uh, if you want to go even more cosmic, E.T. Uh, is always in the top 50, you know. And that's about E.T. go home. Now, home is, you know, another planet, but it's still longing to go home. And movies like Castaway, Tom Hanks, you know, Wilson, the, the volleyball, yeah. Um, I mean, he's not just trying to get off the island, he's trying to get home. And um, you think about music, um, Bruce Springsteen, My Hometown, I'm not going to break out, and I'm going to spare you that one, I'm going to stick with just my old Kentucky home tonight, but I, I could if I wanted to sing most of my hometown. Um, John, De if, you, if you're a little older, you might think of John Denver, Take Me Home, Country Roads, To the Place I Belong, West Virginia, Mountain Mama, Take Me Home, Country Roads. Why are these songs popular? There's popular songs right now. If you're a country music fan, there's a Kelsey Ballerina has a song, Half My Hometown. Um, 
that, and she says, there's a line in there, she says uh, something about, uh, I'll always be from Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, that's just like 50 miles from where I, that'll almost get me choked up sometime. And uh, uh, Miranda Lambert has a song, um, The House That Built Me, about if I could just get back home, this brokenness inside me might heal. Where are all these songs coming from? It's this almost archetypal desire in us to go back home. And that's exactly what they're expressing here. They're homesick, and they want to go back home, and so they say, how can we sing a song in a foreign land? Well, they can't sing a happy song, but they can lament, and that's precisely what they're doing. So they're longing for home. Then we get to the salty part here. Seven through nine is the prayer for revenge this makes it an imprecatory psalm an imprecation is a curse so scholars have this term to refer to lament psalms that go beyond just my situation's terrible bail me out and move to asking for god to take revenge on your enemies And this is not the only one uh, that's going to do it. It's relatively frequent uh, in in, uh, the Psalms and in other places where you have the psalmist, the singer, the poet asking God to get revenge for you. So here it is, verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Now, the Edomites were neighbors of Israel. They're to the south, and apparently when the Babylonians invaded, they didn't do anything to help the Israelites, nor did they just observe idly. They actually cheered the Babylonians on. They supported the invasion. And, of course, that for them, they probably felt stronger if Israel was weaker. So for a rival nation on the border, they were fine. Well... They took note of that, these Israelites carried away in the captivity. So they call them out. They're not going to forget. You cheered them on, saying, tear it down, tear it down. But the real vile uh, call here comes to the Babylonians. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Blessed is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Blessed or happy is the one who who seizes your infants and dashes their heads against the rocks. And a period. Um, Not, and, but we're thankful, Lord, that you're not going to actually do that, or we don't, I mean, it's just, there it is. That's the end of it. And just, just to give you uh, the flavor of it, look at Psalm 58. I think that's the one, 58 or 56. We'll find it here pretty quickly. Um, It's 58. This is a lament of David, so this is a personal lament. But uh, verse 6, he's talking about his enemies. So Psalm 58, 6 says, Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug. See, there's the slug I was talking about. You know, he said, I'm a worm, not a man. Well, here, may they be like the slug that melts away as it moves along. 
May they be like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Now that's the psalmist not just saying, I'm in the pit and I'm really in the, in the blues here. That's asking God to take revenge. He's cursing his enemies. Go back to Psalm 3. Get more of this language. Uh, he says, um, verse 7. So Psalm 3, 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. It's like, you knock their teeth out. May your blessing be on your people. It just feels like those two don't fit together. But obviously, that's how they felt. And if you, again, this is why I started with talking to you about what a dirty, um, dirty thing siege warfare is. you got to know what they had endured, what they had witnessed. I have no doubt that Babylonians had bashed Jewish babies' heads against the rocks. So they're saying, do the same to them as they did to us. Now, should they feel that way? Should we seek vengeance? Should we desire vengeance? Well, I don't know if we should, but we do. And the greater the the suffering that is caused, the more likely we are to wish somehow God would get even with them. And if you've ever had a real enemy or a rival, don't tell me you didn't take some joy if bad things happened to them. And I'm afraid where we are in our political lives that if you're a Republican, if you found out today Joe Biden had been assassinated, I'm sure there are Republicans that would quietly celebrate. And they wouldn't be the only ones. It happened exactly the same way. There'd be Democrats that would have celebrated if Trump had been assassinated. That's where we are. And I don't know how we honestly... I got all confidence in uh, my hope and, and, uh, and my future hope with God. I've got less hope in our republic at the moment. Um, just because of the... The just the absolute demonizing of someone who disagrees with us politically. They're not just someone who disagrees with us. They're not, we don't even think of them as fellow Americans. We don't even want to think of them as fellow human beings. We think of them as the devil, and they should die. And if you listen to people like Alex Jones, and I pray you don't, but if you listen to that trash... You hear that. People are the devil. And they're molesting children in the basements of a pizza parlor in Washington. And when we get there, I don't know how we come back from that. Unless something changes in the way we, we live our lives. So I pray that's not happening in our churches. I pray that that kind of stuff is going on outside. So maybe... Revival would help change that. But I think given our situation, maybe we do understand the call for revenge. Because I'm not sure there's not a significant percentage of our population that doesn't wish that on their political enemies. So maybe it's not so hard to understand. But from a Christian point of view, you can't justify a call for vengeance. Did Jesus sort of indicate that 
the desire for vengeance is okay. If, if the people who you wish the vengeance on are not good people. I mean, he says things like, bless your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. Like when he's on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're executing him. Does Paul say revenge? No, he says, do good to those who do evil to you. So should you feel vengeance, the desire for vengeance? No, you shouldn't. But what do you do when you do? Well, that's the question, isn't it? What, what happens when you feel things that deeply? What do you do? Well, I got several options for you. Let's say you do feel the desire for revenge. You feel it. You want somebody to pay. Hey, I've, I've been there. I got kids. Somebody does your kid wrong, that's when you want vengeance. Forget this political stuff. Somebody mistreat my child, I want them to pay. And that includes bullies on the playground. You know, Luke had some problems in elementary school with a bully. And uh, I honestly wanted to go hide somewhere and try to scare that kid. Now, I, wa- I didn't ever plan to put my hands on the kid, but I wanted to, like, show up. And uh, I don't know what I was going to do, but, you know. I, and, you know, I wanted to help Luke with his boxing moves and, you know, give him some pointers on where what are sensitive areas on the bully so he could get his own revenge but it just wasn't in his makeup to do that so what do you do when you feel that well at least three options one you can go get your revenge now this will likely require you getting a weapon i mean if if you're really serious about it now i'm going to advise against that but that is an option You want revenge, so you go get it at all costs. Go get a gun. Don't do that. Another option would be to just repress those feelings. You know, I think that's what we saw in the psalm on Sunday morning when he said, I was quiet, I didn't say anything about all these strong emotions I was feeling, all this anger I was feeling. I didn't say anything, and then it was just like it was bubbling up inside of me. It wasn't going to stay down there. So what happens if you're feeling that level of emotion that you want people's babies' heads to be bashed against rocks, literally, and you just don't do anything with that? You just press that down. You tell me what's going to happen. You're going to explode. And you're probably going to explode on people that are not your enemies. You'll blow up at home on your wife or your children or your husband. Don't just, that's not healthy either. Another option would be, and this is the last one I'll offer, give it to God. Pour it out to God. Ask God to get your revenge. Now again, having children helps illustrate lots of things. I've got two, uh, five years apart, fought fought a lot, um, and often Levi would end up hurt. He's the five years younger. So when he's like three or four and Luke's like eight or nine, I mean, he could never get the best of Luke at that stage. Um, 
now he's a little bit taller than Luke. He bench presses a little bit more, and it just kills Luke. <laughs> he hates it. Uh, I told somebody that, and they told Luke I said it, and he wanted, to, he wanted to question me on whether that was true or not. So we had to do another one of those. Okay, stand back to back. And he just has had a hard time accepting that his younger brother's actually taller than him now, but he is. And uh, I think they had to go do a uh, max out at the gym to see <laughs> who could bench more. But he's not giving that up easily. But when they were much younger, Levi just was always the one who ended up with his knees a little bloody or maybe his lip bleeding a little bit. I mean, he never hurt him. You know, it's just he pushed him down or, you know, he was too rough with him playing on basketball or whatever. But oftentimes Levi was really upset about what had happened. So he'd come running to us, screaming, crying. Any of y'all ever experienced anything like this? Just screaming, crying. I mean, just completely can't even, can't even say it. You've got to calm him down so he could experience express himself to you and then he starts and man he's mad and the more he calms down from just the, the the more he's angry about what's happened to him and the more revenge he wants on his brother and you do, at first as a parent you're not sure how to handle that maybe you say now whoa 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 Levi now you can't talk like that about your brother you can't call him names like that or you can't wish things like that on him. He's your brother. You've got to love him. I don't want to hear that now. I just don't want to hear that. I probably did that, but that's not the way to go. I could get a notebook and say, okay, Levi, slow down. Now tell me again what you want me to do to him. Oh, you want me to make him bleed? Okay. That's number one. What else? Take his phone forever. Okay, I'll do time out forever. All right, that's three. Now that's it. That's all I'm going to do. And then go do it. Now, that, now Luke might have been punished, but not to the level Levi wanted him to be punished. I learned somewhere along the way that the proper response was, just let Levi pour all that out till he was exhausted sometimes. Just say everything. Pour it all out. Listen to him. Sympathize with him. And then say, okay, Levi, now I'll take care of it. And somehow, that seemed to be the best way forward. If he trusted me, that I'd take care of it. And then by that time, he would probably had stopped crying and we'd put a Band-Aid on whatever was bleeding and he'd go on and play. Now, I'm not saying 100% of the time that worked, but that was the best way. So what's this all about? Why are these psalms here? I think to say to us, what do you do when you feel emotions that strong? You pour it out to God and then you leave it with Him. Do you trust him? If you do, then he'll handle it. And, and I think we need to recover this. Because I think we have these strong emotions and we don't know what to do with them. And all we hear is people telling us you, can't, you shouldn't feel like that. That's not Christian to feel like that. 
And so you, you're made to feel like, well, I can't even tell anybody. I can't express this to anybody. And it sure feels like I shouldn't say things like that to God. And, and yet we have these psalms repeatedly that are saying these things to God. And why are these part of the canon? I think to show us the way. To say, you are a human being and there will be times that you might wish revenge, vengeance. Well, give it to God. Don't go get it yourself. And don't think that it, those feelings will just go away on their own. We need to lament. We need to pour it out to God. Now, I'm so happy that's not Psalm 150. I'd sure hate for Israel's songbook to end with, bash their babies' heads against the rocks. And luckily it doesn't. Look at Psalm 146. Now, which book is this? How many books of Psalms? Five. What's the first book? <laughs> that gets tougher. You know, let's say how many died on the Titanic? Name them. <laughs> All of them, yeah. So, first question, somebody might know it, but didn't you say, now name them? It gets a little tougher. So, uh, there are five books. So, 1 to 41 is book one, with two Psalms of introduction at the beginning. Then 42 through 72 is book two. 73 through 89 is book 3, 90 through 106 is book 4, and 107 to 150 is book 5. Now what have I told you about lament and praise in the collection as we move from start to end? One's increasing and one's decreasing. Where are most of the laments? Early. That first book is overwhelmingly laments. After Psalm 73, which I read you last night, they start to decrease. So by the time you get into book 2, they're starting to decrease. What's happening to praise? Not as much early, but what happens as we get, like, say, after 73, when we get past book 3 into books 4 and 5? The praise is increasing. And I think that's part of the design of it. That's, that's the design of life. We should be moving towards praise all the time. Despite where we might have laments along the way, we should be moving towards praise. And so book five is overwhelmingly praise, not solely, but overwhelmingly. And then the last five psalms in the book five, they all start and end with hallelujah, which is Praise the Lord. It's a command. So Psalm 146 begins, Praise the Lord. Call for, they all call for praise. Here's a call for lifelong praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. That's how they're going to start and end, all five of these final psalms. Now this one, 146, then moves from the call to praise, to the folly of trusting political leaders. Do not put your trust in princes. Now, for us, since we don't have kings and princes, it would be, do not put your trust in senators. Do not put your trust in House of Representatives. Do not put your trust in presidents. Not your trust. Who should you put your trust in? Yeah, you know. So, is any election life or death? 
I mean, we might point to a particular policy, but in general, how long do politicians live? How long do they serve? How long are they in public life? <laughs> Too long. <laughs> You're really conservatives, you know. I mean, real conservative, like small government, uh, and people shouldn't serve forever. Yeah, yeah. Y'all are y'all are conservatives. I can tell it. Um, yeah, I mean, even like somebody like you know Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi or people like that who've served in government for a long time. In the big scheme of things, how long do they really serve? And how long does God rule? Forever. So you can't compare the two. So that's like the percentage of trust you should put in your political leaders versus putting God is like comparing how long does God rule versus how long they rule. And, and I'm, I'm, maybe it's just me, I try to look for the very best in even people I disagree strongly with. Um, but, and so I'll say... You know, the majority of politicians I've met, and I've met from both parties, are not evil people or wicked people or, or awful people. Um, but no matter how good they are or how much they wish to serve the public good, they're only going to serve for a very short period of time in the big scheme of things. And when they die, what happens to all their plans? That's why you can't put your trust in them. Not because they don't mean well. It's because they're just humans. They're just human beings like you and me. You can't put your trust in them. And that's what he says. Do not put your trust in, I'll say presidents, in human beings, mortals, who cannot save. When their spirit departs, which is a way of saying when they die, they return to the ground. And he uses a play on words here. It's the same play that happens in the creation account in Genesis chapter 2 when God fashions man out of the dirt, out of the ground. What's his name? Adam, Adam. And the Hebrew word for dirt is Adamah. So he, he fashions Adam out of Adamah, Adamah. It's a play on the word for dirt. I guess Adam means dirt. Or ground, you know. So he uses the same play here. Do not put your trust in princes in human beings. That's the word um, Adam. When their spirit departs, they return to the dirt, the Adamah. He uses the same play on words here. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those who help, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Now, just to do a little experiment here, if, if I were to say, I'll give you uh, an OBU shirt, I'm just saying, if it's hypothetical, if you can name first how many presidents we've had, like what number the current president is, that's first, and then two, name them all one to that number. Now, I'm just curious, if I were promising that, who could, who could do that? You could name them. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to, because I'm running out of time. But um, I can't name them. I can't get close. I mean, I'm just confessing here myself. 
I do know that Biden is 46, and I mainly know that because I remember Trump was 45. And before him was Obama, and before Obama was Bush, and before Bush, Clinton, and before Clinton, George H.W., not just W., and uh, then before Bush, the first Bush, Carter, see that? Ah, see? See? Now you're doing... See, I get lost there at that point. I mean, I can start naming presidents. I remember like Reagan. I can, I can start naming presidents that I can recall. But now I'm losing the order. So let's go back to the beginning and start there and try to work towards like 41 or 40. Um, so we're all going to get George Washington, right? And uh, then John Adams. And then Thomas Jefferson. And then I start fading. And I fade all the way to like 16, Abraham Lincoln. And then I'm lost again until like Reagan. Now, these are the most important leaders in, I know, I'm an American, in the most important country in the world in, for most of those, you know, 200 plus years. And I can't name, and, and I, you know, you can give me a name, and I might think, yeah, I remember, but I couldn't tell you one thing about that president or one policy that they promoted. Why is that? Because they only rule for four years, eight at the most. Now, George Washington could probably rule forever, but he didn't want to. They're just mortals. They're just human beings. And... There's no eternal fate that rests on which party gets elected. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be engaged in political process and you should be voting for candidates that you believe identify with the things you think are important. But you also need to realize you cannot put your hope or trust in any candidate. And if your trust is in God, then you're not going to lose all hope because the other side wins an election. Maybe that's the more important part, that you don't think it's the end of the world when your candidate loses. And if the Lord tarries, there'll be another election. We'll win that one. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free, not the governor, not the parole board. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind, not Nancy Pelosi. I knew I'd get an amen on that. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Not the free market system. The Lord loves the righteous, not the Southern Baptist Convention. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the orphan and the widow, not the U.S. president. I'm not saying any of those entities don't matter in the world, but it is the Lord who ultimately does all those things, and you can't vote him out. Ah, suddenly I can feel different about an election. I will work, and I will promote, and I will vote. 
but my trust is in the Lord. And then it ends with praise. The Lord reigns forever. Uh, Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. Now, for Psalm 147, praise the Lord ends, praise the Lord. That's all I'm going to do with 147. 148. First, there's praise the Lord from the heavens in verses 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Now that's praise the Lord, you heavens, And it's sort of the space of heaven and then all the individuals that make up heaven. All the inhabitants of it. The sun and the the moon and the stars. And then praise the Lord from the land. Verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do His bidding, you mountains and all hills. How, How do the mountains praise the Lord? How do the hills praise the Lord? Fruit trees and cedars. How does a fruit tree praise the Lord? By bearing fruit. By doing the thing that it was made to do. By doing that, that fruit tree praises the Lord by bearing fruit. Wild animals, cattle, small creatures, flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children, praise the Lord. Now that's praise the Lord from the earth, the land, and all those are the inhabitants of the land. So it's heaven and all the inhabitants there and earth and all the inhabitants there. And then it ends, praise the Lord. Now skip all the way to 150. And 149 does the same. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now Psalm 150 is the last one. Now here's, here's the last of the last. 150. So we got 150 Psalms. And the last one focuses on nothing but praise. It's not going to go to the same to tell the others. It's just praise the Lord and then ends with the sort of the ultimate call. So this is 150, and this is the, the last of the collection. Book 5 is moved towards praise, and now here it is. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now isn't that the perfect ending to a collection that's moving towards praise? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's what the world needs. That's what I need. That's the hope that the inhabitants of God's creation will recognize that He is the Lord and praise Him. Rather than seek 
to glorify ourselves rather than live selfishly and worship ourselves and worship the creation itself rather than the creator. To praise the Lord. Now that's a good way to end. That's the way the psalmist ended. That's the way I'll end. So now you got 150 of these to go back through and analyze the parallelism and ask what kind of psalm it is. And when I get back next year, I'll ask you how that went. Maybe we'll have a little exam. Maybe the winner will get an OBU jersey or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah. Well, thank you again. I'm going to ask a blessing on you and uh, then we'll be dismissed. Now, as you go out from this place tonight into a cold, dark world, a world filled with uncertainties, a world filled with evil and pandemics, may you go with God and may you be not afraid. May the Lord go before you to guide you. May the Lord go before you to protect you. May the Lord go beneath you to secure you. And may the Lord walk beside you to befriend you. Now go, go with God, and be not afraid. Amen.